Chapter Two, Book Two, of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Two, Chapter Two, The Funeral Oration. In northern customs duty was expressed To friends departed by their funeral feast. Though I've consulted Holling's shed and stow, I find it very difficult to know Who to refresh the attendants to the grave, Burnt claret first, or Naples biscuit gave. King, Art of Cookery Ceterum priusquam corpus humo injecta contegator defunctus oriatone funebri lordabator durand a supply of spirits was here introduced lights were brought at the same time and placed upon a long oak table the party gathered round it ill humour was speedily dissipated and even the storm disregarded in the copious libations that ensued at this juncture a loiterer appeared in the hall his movements were unnoticed by all excepting the sexton, who watched his proceedings with some curiosity. The person walked to the window, appearing, so far as he could be discovered, to eye the storm with great impatience. He then paced the hall rapidly backwards and forwards, and Peter fancied he could detect sounds of disappointment in his muttered exclamations. Again he returned to the window, as if to ascertain the probable duration of the shower. It was a hopeless endeavour. All was pitch dark without. The lightning was now only seen at long intervals, but the rain still audibly descended in torrents. Apparently seeing the impossibility of controlling the elements, the person approached the table. "'What think you of the night, Mr. Palmer?' asked the sexton of Jack, for he was the anxious investigator of the weather." "'Don't know. Can't say. Set in, I think. Cursed unlucky. For the funeral, I mean. We shall be drowned if we go.' "'Drunk if we stay,' rejoined Peter. "'But never fear. It will hold up, depend upon it, long before we can start. "'Where have they put the prisoner?' asked he, with a sudden change of manner. "'I know the room, but can't describe it. It's two or three doors down the lower corridor of the eastern gallery. "'Good!' "'Who are on guard?' "'Titus Tyrconnell and that swivel-eyed quill-driver Coates.' "'Enough.' "'Come, come, Master Peter,' roared Toft. "'Let's have another stave. "'Give us one of your odd snatches. "'No more corpse candles or that sort of thing. "'Something lively. "'Something jolly. "'Ha!' "'A good move,' shouted Jack. "'A lively song from you. "'Lily Bullero from a death's head. "'Ha-ha!' "'My songs are all... "'Of a sort,' returned Peter. "'I am seldom asked to sing a second time. "'However, you are welcome to the merriest I have.' "'And preparing himself, like certain other accomplished vocalists, "'with a few preliminary hems and haws, "'he struck forth the following doleful ditty. "'The Old Oak Coffin. "'Sic ego compone versus in ossa velim.' Tibullus. In a churchyard upon the sward, 
a coffin there was laid, and leaning stood beside the wood, a sexton on his spade. A coffin old and black it was, and fashioned curiously, with a quaint device of carved oak in hideous fantasy. From here was wrought the sculptured thought of a tormented face, with serpents lithe around it writhe in folded strict embrace. Grim visages of grinning fiends were at each corner set, and emblematic scrolls, mort heads, and bones together met. Ah, well-a-day, that sexton grey unto himself did cry, Beneath that lid much lieth hid, much awful mystery. It is an ancient coffin from the abbey that stood there. Perchance it holds an abbot's bones, perchance of those a frere. In digging deep, where monks do deep, beneath yon cloister shroud, that coffin old within the mould it was my chance to find. The costly carvings of the lid I scraped full carefully, in hope to get at name or date, yet nothing could I see. With pick and spade I've plied my trade for sixty years and more, yet never found beneath the ground shell strange as that before. Full many coffins I have seen, have seen them deep or flat, fantastical in fashion, non-fastical as that. And saying so, with heavy blow, the lid he shattered wide, and pale with fright, a ghastly sight that sexton grey espied. A miserable sight it was, that loathsome corpse to see, the last, last dreary darksome sage of fallen humanity. Though all was gone, save reeky bone, a green and grisly heap, with scarce a trace of fleshly face, strange posture did it keep. The hands were clenched, the teeth were wrenched, as if the wretch had risen, e'en after death, had taken his breath, to strive and burst his prison. The neck was bent, the nails were rent, no limb or joint was straight, together glued with blood imbued, black and coagulate. And as the sexton stooped him down to lift the coffin plank, his fingers were defiled or o'er with slimy substance dank. Ah, well-a-day, that sexton grey, unto himself did cry, Full well I see how fate's decree foredoomed this wretch to die. A living man, a breathing man, within the coffin thrust. Alack, alack, the agony ere he returned to dust. A vision drear did then appear unto that sexton's eyes. Like that poor wight before him, straight he in a coffin lies. He lieth in a trance within that coffin close and fast. Yet though he sleepeth now, he feels he shall wake at last. The coffin then, by reverend men, is borne with footsteps slow, Where tapers shrine before the shrine, where breathes the requiem low, And for the dead the prayer is said, for the soul that is not flown. Then all is drowned in hollow sound, the earth is o'er him thrown. He draweth breath, he wakes from death, to life more horrible, To agony, such agony, no living tongue may tell. Die, die he must, that wretched one, he struggles, strives in vain. No more heaven's light nor sunshine bright shall he behold again. Gramercy, Lord, the sexton roared, awakening suddenly. If this be dream, yet doth it seem most dreadful so to die. Oh, cast my body in the sea, or hurl it on the shore. But nail me not in coffin fast, no grave will I dig more. 
It was not difficult to discover the effects produced by this song. In the lengthened faces of the greater part of the audience, Jack Palmer, however, laughed loud and long. "'Bravo! Bravo!' cried he. "'That suits my humour exactly. I can't abide the thoughts of a coffin. No deal-box for me.' "'A gibbet might, perhaps, serve your turn as well,' muttered the sexton, adding aloud, "'I am now entitled to call upon you. A song! A song!' "'Aye, a song, Mr. Palmer, a song!' reiterated the hinds yours will be the right kind of thing say no more replied jack i'll give you a chant composed upon dick turpin the highwayman it's no great shakes to be sure but it's the best i have and with a knowing wink at the sexton he commenced in the true nasal whine the following strain one foot in the stirrup or turpin's first fling cum esset proposita fuga Turpis, Cicero. One foot in the stirrup, one hand in the rein, and the noose be my portion or freedom I'll gain. Oh, give me a seat in my saddle once more, and these bloodhounds shall find that the chase is not o'er. Thus muttered Dick Turpin, who found while he slept that the Philistines old on his slumbers had crept, had entrapped him as puss on her form you'd ensnare, and that gone were his snappers, and gone were his mare. Hilloa! How Dick Turpin had been captured is readily told. The pursuit had been hot, though the night had been cold. So at daybreak, exhausted, he sought brief repose, mid the thick of a cornfield away from his foes. But in vain was his caution, in vain did his steed, ever watchful and wakeful in moments of need, with lip and hoof on her master's cheek press. He slept on, nor heeded the warning of Bess. Loire! "'Zounds, gentlemen!' cried Turpin. "'You've found me at fault, and the high-flying highwayman's come to a halt. "'You have turned up a trump, for I weigh well my weight. "'And the forty is yours, though the halter's my fate. "'Well, come on what will, you shall own when all's past, "'that Dick Turpin the dauntless was game to the last. "'But before we go further, I'll hold you a bet "'that one foot in my stirrup you won't let me set. Hurrah!' A hundred to one is the odds I will stand. A hundred to one is the odds you command. Here's a handful of goldfinches ready to fly. May I venture a foot in my stirrup to try? As he carefully spoke, Dick directed a glance at his courser and motioned her slyly askance. You might tell by the singular toss of her head and the prick of her ears that his meaning she read. Hilloa! With derision at first was Dick's wager received, and his error at starting as yet unretrieved, but when from his pocket the shiners he drew, and offered to make up the hundred to two, there were havers in plenty, and each whispered each, the same thing though varied in figure of speech, let the fool act his folly, the stirrup of Bess, he has put his foot in it already, we guess, Hilloa! Bess was brought to her master, Dick steadfastly gazed at the eye of his mare, then his foot quick upraised. His toe touched the stirrup, his hand grasped the rein. He was safe on the back of his courser again, as the clarion fray sounding and shrill was the neigh of Black Bess as she answered his cry. Hark away! Beset me, ye bloodhounds, in rear and in van. My foot's in the stirrup, and catch me who can. Hilloa! There was riding and jibing mid rabble and rout, and the old woods re-echoed the Philistine's shout. There was hurling and whirling or break and or briar, but the course of Dick Turpin was swift as heaven's fire. 
Whipping, spurring, and straining, would nothing avail. Dick laughed at their curses and scoffed at their wail. My foot's in the stirrup, thus rang his last cry. Bess has answered my call, now her metal we'll try. Hilloah! Uproarious applause followed Jack's song, when the joviality of the mourners was interrupted by a summons to attend the stateroom. Silence was at once completely restored, and in the best order they could assume, they followed their leader, Peter Bradley. Jack Palmer was amongst the last to enter, and remained a not incurious spectator of a by no means common scene. Preparations had been made to give due solemnity to the ceremonial. The leaden coffin was fastened down, and enclosed in an outer case of oak, upon the lid of which stood a richly chased massive silver flagon, filled with burnt claret called the grace cup all the lights were removed save two lofty wax flambeaux which were placed to the back and threw a lurid glare upon the group immediately about the body consisting of ranulph rookwood and some other friends of the deceased dr small stood in front of the bier and under the directions of peter bradley the tenantry and household were formed into a wide half-moon across the chamber there was a hush of expectation, as Dr. Small looked gravely round, and even Jack Palmer, who was as little likely as any man to yield to an impression of the kind, felt himself moved by the scene. The very orthodox Small, as is well known to our readers, held everything savouring of the superstitions of the scarlet woman in supreme abomination, and entertaining such opinions it can scarcely be supposed that a funeral oration would find much favour in his eyes, accompanied, as it was, with the accessories of censer, candle, and cup, all evidently derived from that period when, under the three-crowned pontiff's sway, the shaven priest pronounced his benediction o'er the dead, and released the penitent soul from purgatorial flames, while he heavily mulcted the price of his redemption from the possessions of his successor. Small resented the idea of treading in such steps, as an insult to himself and his cloth. Was he the intolerant of papistry to tolerate this? Was he, who could not endure the odour of Catholicism, to have his nostrils thus polluted, his garments thus defiled by actual contact with it? It was not to be thought of. And had he formally signified his declination to Mr. Coates, when a little conversation with that gentleman, and certain weighty considerations therein held forth, the advowson of the Church of Rookwood residing within the family, and represented by him, as well as the placing in juxtaposition of penalties to be incurred by refusal, but the scruples of Small gave way, and, with the best grace he could muster, very reluctantly promised compliance. With these feelings, it will be readily conceived that the doctor was not in the best possible frame of mind for the delivery of his exhortation. His spirit had been ruffled by a variety of petty annoyances, amongst the greatest of which was the condition to which the good cheer had reduced his clerk, Zachariah Trundletext, whose reeling eye, pendulous position, and open mouth proclaimed him absolutely incapable of office. Zachariah was, in consequence, dismissed and small commenced his discourse unsupported but 
as our recording it would not probably conduce to the amusement of our readers, whatever it might to their edification, we shall pass it over with a very brief mention. Suffice it to say that the oration was so thickly interstrewn with lengthy quotations from the fathers, Chrysostomus, Hieronymus, Ambrosius, Basilius, Bernardus, and the rest, with whose recondite Latinity, notwithstanding the clashing of their opinions with his own, the doctor was intimately acquainted, and which he moreover delighted to quote, that his auditors were absolutely mystified and perplexed, and probably not without design. Countenances of such amazement were turned towards him that Small, who had a keen sense of the ludicrous, could scarcely forbear smiling as he proceeded, and if we could suspect so grave a personage of waggery, we should almost think that, by way of retaliation, he had palmed some abstruse monkish epicidium among his astounded auditors. The oration concluded, biscuits and confectionery were, according to the old observance, handed to such of the tenantry as chose to partake of them. The serving of the grace cup, which ought to have formed part of the duties of Zachariah, had he been capable of office, fell to the share of the sexton. The bull was kissed, first by Ranulph, with lips that trembled with emotion, and afterward by his surrounding friends. But no drop was tasted, a circumstance which did not escape Peter's observation. Proceeding to the tenantry, the first in order happened to be Farmer Toft. Peter presented the cup, and as Toft was about to drain a deep draught of the wine, Peter whispered in his ear, "'Take my advice for one's friend, Toft, and don't let a bubble of the liquid pass your lips. For every drop of the wine you drain, Sir Piers will have one sin the less, and you a load the heavier on your conscience. Didst never hear of sin swallowing, for what else was this custom adopted? Seest thou not the cup's brim hath not yet been moistened?' well as you will <sighs> and the sexton passed onwards his work being nearly completed he looked around for jack palmer whom he had remarked during the oration but could nowhere discover him peter was about to place the flagon now almost drained of its contents upon its former resting-place when small took it from his hands impoculi fundo residuum non relinqui admonisheth pythagoras said he returning the empty cup to the sexton my task here is ended muttered peter but not elsewhere foul weather or fine thunder or rain i must go to the church bequeathing his final instructions to certain of the household who were to form part of the procession in case it set out he opened the hall door and the pelting shower dashing heavily in his face took his way up the avenue, screaming as he strode along the following congenial rhymes. Ephilialtes! I ride alone, I ride by night, through the moonless air on a coarser white, over the dreaming earth I fly, here and there, at my fantasy. My frame is withered, my visage old, my locks are four and my bones ice cold. The wolf will howl as I pass his lair, the band-dog moan and the screech-owl stare, For breath at my coming the sleeper strains, And the freezing current forsakes his reins, Vainly for pity the wretch may sue, Merciless Mara no prayers subdue, To his couch I flit, 
on his breast I sit, astride, 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 and one charm alone, a hollow stone, can scare me from his side. A thousand antic shapes I take, the stoutest heart at my touch will quake, the miser dreams of a bag of gold, or a ponderous chest on his bosom rolled, the drunkard groans neath a cask of wine, the reveller swelts neath a weighty chine, the recreant turns by his foes assailed, to flee, but his feet to the ground are nailed, the goathered dreams of his mountain tops, and dizzily reeling, downward drops, the murderer feels at his throat a knife, and gasps as his victim gasped for life. The thief recoils from the scorching brand, the mariner drowns in sight of land. Thus sinful man have I power to fray, torture and rack, but not to slay. But ever the couch of purity, with withering glance, I hurry by. Then mount, away, to horse, I say, to horse, astride, astride. The fire drake shoots, the screech owl hoots, as through the air I glide. End of chapter 2, book 2